can it be true that rejecting a belief in God can help you get closer to God? Part of the theory of my guest today, Thomas J. Ord, in the second part of our conversation with Thomas J. Ord, who is uh, a writer and an originator of a theology called Open and Relational Theology. You're going to find this conversation extremely interesting, and particularly if you're somebody out there saying, well, what does my relationship with God look like today? As you're listening to this podcast, please consider going to my website, pastor-paul.com and subscribing and help us keep all this free content coming out for the world. Again, it's pastor-paul.com. See our subscriptions and everything we offer to keep this work moving and on uh, our podcast and everywhere you pick up all kinds of content that we offer. Again, it's pastor-paul.com. Now part two of our discussion with Thomas J. Ord here on the Post Evangelical Podcast. I'm talking with Thomas J. Ord, Tom, who is uh, author of the books, God Can't, How to Believe in God and Love After Tragedy, Abuse and Other Evils. And his newest book, which I have a copy of right here, that I really appreciate you giving me a copy of this. Yeah. Open and Relational Theology, an Introduction to Life-Changing Ideas. And uh, it's interesting discussion. So we're in this space in this world where a lot of people are in this deconstruction, as we're talking about. What, yeah. In your in the forward of your book, you talked about being invited maybe to leave some denominations or organizations in the past with your beliefs. How how has your transition of faith and beliefs come about in your life over the past few years? Yeah, well, I, maybe before I talk about the last few years, I should say I was raised in a pretty evangelical community. I was a a uh, gung-ho evangelist, part of Campus Crusade for Christ, the kind of person who would bug you at, on the sidewalk and want to share Jesus with you. I was, you know, one of those kind of really you aggressive. Pass out tracks? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Especially the four spiritual laws. <laughs> I probably could still quote those for you. I had them probably. memorized. Yep. And then uh, in a philosophy of religion course, I started reading some really smart atheists, agnostics, and those from other religious traditions. And for the sake of intellectual honesty, I had to admit I didn't have good reasons to believe there was a God. Mm -hmm. And um, I was an atheist for a while. But I was one of those atheists who kept my head in the studying and kept thinking about the deep issues. And eventually I came to think that it might be more plausible than not that there is a God. And my, the plausibility rests on this search for meaning that I had, that if there was going to be any ultimate meaning, it had to have a grounding that most people call God. And this, these intuitions about love that I had, that I ought to be a loving person, and that ought to have some kind of source that most people call God. And then from that, I began to slowly kind of add things into this belief. I mean, for a long time, I believed there was a loving God. I thought Jesus was pretty cool. And that's about the end of my theology. <laughs> like, I had no eschatology, ecclesiology. That's about it. <laughs> um, but I continue to work at it. And 
um, following scripture, my intuitions, what I found from science, the arts, began to grow into what I now call open and relational theology. But that kind of thinking, especially proposing new ideas, even if you are, can make good arguments, they align with scripture, that kind of thinking rubs against powers and principalities within the church, <laughs> within mm -hmm. institutions. And um, so I was laid off from my college university theologians position seven years ago. Wow. Um, and that was a big hoopla and I had to go through a trial. And even though I passed the trial, the president still figured out a way to let me go based on dropping enrollment numbers. He claimed they weren't, weren't really dropping. Um, and boy, that talk about painful, Whew. Yeah, painful to me and my wife and my kids and my colleagues and friends and still some pain there, still some trauma in my life over that. Um, and that's okay to admit. I, I know a lot of people say, well, your, your beliefs have changed because you're hurt. And my answer to that is always, yes, I have been hurt. Jesus yeah. was hurt by the church too. That didn't make his words invalid. Yeah, great. Yeah, that's great. Well, and this idea that I've been talking about that God's not in control, I've had that idea for quite a while, 20 years probably. Yeah. Um, but that was actually super helpful going through my trauma because I didn't have to think this was a part of God's plan. <laughs> like I, and I didn't think that God could just swoop in and single-handedly rescue me and work everything out. Cause if that was the case, God was asleep on the job, you know? Um, so or you, having, or you had sinned for some reason, any or I'd sinned, but yeah, I, w I was pretty confident that the problem wasn't me, and so were all my <laughs> friends and everybody who knew the scenarios. Um, so yeah, so that open and relational theology was super important to help me get through that without sort of giving up on a God who must be punishing me or abandoning me or whatever. You know, I, 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 my, my experience is similar, and I, I definitely had my my atheist time in college where I set out to prove there's no God, and I think I eventually found that to be impossible. And I, I tell my atheist friends all the time, like, you have to be pretty fundamentalist to land at the place of there is no God, and you're an idiot if you believe there is. Um, and so then I just decided, you know, God existed, but I didn't like him, and he and I would not be friends. Um, <laughs> but I, I think that's a really important process for people to go through. I know, I know, we're scared of our children going off to public schools or something. But wouldn't you say, like, I, you know, what I hear you is saying, you 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 have a a more open pathway to God now, having gone through that process. Yes, yes. I, I'm not saying everybody will, uh, yeah. but definitely I do. I see deconstruction as potentially very helpful for most people, maybe all people, but most people. Um, because if they're really rejecting crappy views of God, then kudos to them. Much better to reject crappy views and just sort of go along, ho-hum, accepting things, trying to keep your head, you know, duck your head so you're not in trouble or whatever. That's no authentic way to life. You won't find joy in that approach to life. But if you face your questions head on, even if that means rejecting belief in God, 
um, it may be you'll end up like me and you, apparently, uh, <laughs> coming back to a belief in God that makes far better sense. Um, there is a reconstructed view of God on the other side of deconstruction that doesn't take you back to the same old ideas you had when you were younger, but can actually make better sense of your deep intuitions, can be reasonable, makes better sense of science, the arts, even scripture, philosophy. Um, at least that's, I think, uh, a way to describe the open relational tradition. Yeah, and I, I think it's it's good because the way I was raised, you either had to be all in or out. You, know, yeah. so I, you had to believe in a literal Adam and Eve and a, yeah. a literal Noah's Ark, or you had to be an atheist. You're like, those were the two choices. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then not only did you have to believe in literal Adam and Eve and all that stuff, you had to know it with absolute certainty. You know, like you couldn't have any doubts. Uh, oh, what a horrible way to live. Uh, Isn't it though? And it's and it's funny. It, it really was. I mean, all of this was changing in me, but it, but it was seminary training where I, I started hearing, like how the canon was compiled of of our of our Bible, and you know, you think it's this beautiful, sweet book floating down from heaven, and hearing the humanness in that process, uh, and and the rapture, of course, from from the denomination I came from, and you find. Our theology, if, and, and maybe this is why you have to defend it so vigorously, right? Because it's this Jenga tower where it's like you pull out just the right block. Great illustration. Goes, yeah, that's a great analogy. Huh. Yeah, seminary was helpful for me too. I mean, I was beginning the process before going to seminary, but um, I definitely learned things in seminary that helped me. You know, things like, turns out the Roman Catholic tradition thinks the church comes prior to scripture. And so that sort of changes the way you think about authority. And um, yeah, there's all kinds of things you learn that broaden your horizon for what might be accepted. Hope you're enjoying this conversation. Let me interrupt for just a moment and remind you, pastor-paul.com is the website. That's where you can subscribe. It's like a Patreon page if you've known how Patreon works. Uh, a patron was somebody that helped a creator do their work. Did you know William Shakespeare had patrons that paid for his living expenses so that he could create art? Same with Beethoven, Mozart, uh, Galileo. Now. I'm not saying I'm any of those guys, but I'm a creative creating art, so to speak, to help people hear that God is not mad at them and he won't get upset. He, that's my tradition of calling God a he. The God of heaven will not get upset if they start thinking for themselves. And so pastor-paul.com is the place where we do that on my website, where you can subscribe, get all kinds of fun benefits for as little as $5.99 a month, or you can really help support us with $100 a month, and it's pastor-paul.com is the website. Would you go check it out? And just out of the joy of seeing this message get out to the world that God is not like those angry Republican people over there the God of heaven, the truth and goodness of heaven is actually not angry, judgmental, and thin-skinned. Pastor-Paul.com is the place you can go to help. Now, to our conversation with Thomas J. Ord on the Post-Evangelical Podcast. The book is Open and Relational Theology, an Introduction to Life-Changing Ideas. 
And uh, Thomas's website, Thomas J. Ord, two O's in O-O-R-D dot com is the website. So people can find you out there, right? Yep. Yep. Strange last name, a Dutch name, double O-R-D. Of course, your name isn't exactly common. So no, it's not. People have a hard time (laughs) pronouncing it for sure. So do you have a recommendation for how people go into that process of starting to ask questions, maybe particularly when they've been told they're not allowed to ask questions? Like, how do you recommend somebody kind of dive into that process of I've been asking questions and now I'm going to give myself permission to do so? Yeah, a couple of things I've seen as helpful in my own life or in the lives of others. Some people uh, find having a mentor during that process helpful. Now, you got to get a a mentor who's not going to uh, it's going to be honest and, and open to the process. Some people want to mentor you and they really just want to bring you back to where you started from. And that's not a good way to go. So a good mentor can be helpful. Another approach I've seen to be helpful is having a close group of friends who are willing to be honest with one another and go through this thing together. And today it's easier to find a community like that thanks to social media and the internet, digital, etc. For me personally, I didn't really have either one of those, except if you think that books might be a community. (laughs) Um, You know, I was reading a lot of books and thinking about them in private. um, And that really helped me when I was in that that process. Yeah, I I think I didn't realize I was going through deconstruction when I was going through it. But uh, yeah, I think those are good. And and because we have people ask a lot, how do we know we're not going into heresy? Um, I'm not sure going into heresy is the worst thing that can happen for you. From yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe we need to, but uh, I think finding a community, like, isn't this how the guys in the New Testament, did they just bounce things off of each other and said, does this sound right to you? This is my experience now. And and maybe that's how we, we kind of do this together, right? Yeah. What helped me with that her- heresy question was I became convinced at an early age the majority of people could be wrong about something. And that seemed just like pretty obvious to me. If you think about advances in knowledge, it's the case that the majority of people think X, some something new comes along, and then the majority switches to something to Y. So that was the first principle. The majority can be wrong. The second move was heresy is just the minority opinion. (laughs) So it may be that what's heresy at one point becomes majority orthodox at another point. (laughs) Everything we believe today was heresy at one point. (laughs) Probably. (laughs) That's true. And I I just think giving ourselves permission uh, and, and that's really some of what I what I hope with a podcast like this or some of the content mm-hmm. I do, the books you write, uh, some of the leaders in all of this, like the McLarens and Rob Bells and people that some of us might say, I don't agree with everything those people believe, but but they gave me permission to think. Yeah. And, and maybe that's just it of knowing we can give each other permission to think. And I don't know, does God give us permission to think too? I don't know. Definitely. I hope so. I mean, if you have to have the right theology, boy, we're all doomed. At least I'm doomed. And the truth is, you know, I also am sometimes say, well, I like X 
theologian or ex-Christian, but I don't believe everything they have. And then I think to myself, well, I don't believe everything I used to think a year ago. So like, <laughs> do I really need to add that tag on there? I, I never believe everything that everybody says. <laughs> very true. It's very true. So we can we can read a, a book that's challenging our thoughts and and uh, I'm saying I used to hear in our circles a lot, eat the chicken and spit out the bones. You, you, oh. you Nice. You don't have to swallow everything. You can say, oh, that doesn't quite work for me right now. Yeah. I, you know, there is one thing that I'm trying to do in my life. Well, I've been trying for a long time. I'm not going to claim to be perfect at this, but I would recommend it to people going through a deconstruction period, actually anything in life, but especially deconstruction. And that is the notion that we should do our best to give the most charitable interpretation we can to a person or a text. Mm. We can disagree with it vehemently. I'm not saying you have to agree with everything, but try to put yourself in the author's shoes and see things from that person's perspective. That'll help you kind of get a sense of why they think they think they, the way they think the things they do, but also help you to have a stronger critique of those things you uh, find unhelpful after you've put yourself in their shoes. Mm, that's good. That's good. And I, I always tell people, get in proximity with somebody that believes differently than you. Yeah. Um, and again, that's that's what I try to accomplish with this podcast of having, a, we had a trans pastor on uh, a while back or a, or, or a person of color who, who is, you know, talking about colonization uh, of, of Christianity in the past and these things, because these things that we stand vehemently against in the, what I call the white Euro Christian church, white culturally, maybe not white in color always. Um, we stand against these things, but we actually really don't know anybody who is experiencing those things in their life. And and when you get in front of a human being, I think we start to change a little bit and be changed by that. Yeah, good point. I'm finding that in my engagements of those of other religious traditions. Um because I grew up in a farming community that um, there were no Jewish people. There was in a town of 5,000, I think there were five black people. <laughs> so not a lot of racial diversity either. Uh, and almost everybody I know went to church uh, and most of them Protestant. Um, so I really didn't grow up around people of other religious traditions and had a very constricted view of, of them. And now I'm, learning more in the just real relational friendships I have. And that's been really helpful for me. And what's, what's really strange, Paul, you probably can relate to this. I've got some Muslim and Jewish friends whom I agree more theologically than some of my <laughs> Baptist friends. <laughs> it's the weirdest thing ever. Very like their, true. Their view of God is closer to mine than some of my fellow Christians. <laughs> And I, I go to the, you know, Romans 12, too, is kind of one of the verses I probably lean on as much as anything right now is, you know, don't some some interpretations are don't be conformed to this world. I, I think age is a better interpretation of that. And I even then sort of give it my own translation of like, don't be conformed to your community or your echo chamber or your mindset, wow. that, but but be transformed you know, which means just completely changed by the ongoing renewing of your mind so you can know what is good and right 
in a season. I, I, I think we have to be meeting Jewish people and Muslim people and queer people and, and people of color, people that are not in our sphere, so we can know what, what God's plan is for everybody in a season. Mm. And without it, I think the opposite of that is hard-heartedness. The opposite of that is mm. being entrenched and and all of those things the Bible talks against. And Jesus talked about people becoming whitewashed tombs or hypocrites or, you know, the leaven of the Pharisees, all those things. So, yeah, yeah. I think I think hanging out with people of different beliefs is, is a command of the Bible. Mm, that's great. I'm going to steal that interpretation of Romans 12. That's good. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> Feel free. Feel free. So are you a universalist then? Not a classic universalist. Okay. Um, a classic universalist, as I would define it, says that it's inevitable everyone enjoys afterlife bliss either because God sovereignly uh, decides, says Ali Ali income free and we all go to heaven, or God so created things such that we're ended up, we'll be determined to go to heaven. It'll be inevitable. That's kind of more David Bentley Hart's view, that second one. First one, a good representative might be someone like Karl Barth. Mm. My view says this, God, moment by moment, always invites everyone to a life of love. And we can choose to respond to that invitation appropriately or inappropriately. When we die, God doesn't give up inviting us because I happen to believe in life after death. So we continue to have the invitation to love moment by moment. And we can continue to say yes or no to that. When we say no, there are natural negative consequences that come from saying no. God doesn't send us to hell. God doesn't punish us. But saying no to love is its own punishment. Now, because I have a God who can't control, this God can't force anyone to heaven. But because I have a God who never gives up, what I call the relentless love of God, there's the genuine hope for universalism but not the kind of guarantee that could only come from some kind of sovereignty. Is Do you see that as sort of a, a purgatory, a Sheol holding tank or, uh, or, or nihilism or, you know, annihilation or any of those? I'm sorry, annihilation. How yeah. Do you see that? I'm against annihilation. Okay. Um, annihilation sounds to me like God gives up on some people. Okay. Like God says, you know, I gave Paul 7,867 chances, no more. <laughs> um, and some people will say, well, God doesn't destroy actively. God doesn't put through the fire people and burn them up, annihilate them. God just decides not to resurrect them. And I say, well, it still sounds like a God giving up on some people. Yeah. And the God I believe in never gives up. Purgatory has had the connotation in most circles that God puts you through the flames in order to purify you. And that still sounds kind of punitive to me. Still sounds like, you know, God's got to uh, build your character by making things tough on you for a while. Um, so I don't, maybe there's other, there's various views of purgatory. I'm at least against that one, which is yeah. the more common one. Um, so it's not so much a trial after death. It's a continual relationship, continual invitation, but never coercion on God's part, always wanting to lure us into a life of love. 
with the prospect because God never gives up that everyone might eventually agree. Yeah, these are, you know, these are questions we won't know the answer to right until we can't do a podcast like this anymore. But, uh... <laughs> but you know, I think it's important to have views of this because yeah. what you think God is like in terms of the afterlife can affect how you think God is acting now. Yeah. Um, so like some people will say, well, Tom, why limit God's power? That's the way they'll say it. Why limit God's power and say God can't control? Because, you know, God is eventually going to restore, redeem, and reconcile all things. And everyone goes to the good place. And I say to themselves, well, if God can do that in some kind of omnipotent move in the afterlife, why the heck isn't God doing that omnipotent move right now to alleviate the crap that people have to go through? So our views about the afterlife affect what we think God is up to in the present. Mm, that's good. Yeah. If you believe he can throw somebody, he can throw somebody into hell forever and, and foreknew that was going to happen, then that definitely gives a different view. I, I see fire throughout the Bible as, as this purifying force. Um, and so I guess I, and, and maybe there's just something human in me that wants to say, like, I, I kind of always say, if me and Donald Trump are just going to end up in the same place, I got, I got a problem with that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm hoping that, uh, he and many others and myself too, will, will have some reckoning for our deeds. And, and so mm -hmm. I guess I, maybe that either allegorically or, or literally, and I look at that rich man in Lazarus story of Jesus, that maybe there's. There's some purification process there where we have a reckoning for our deeds. And and for some, maybe it takes a little longer than others. I, I don't know, perhaps. But I, I, I thought Rob Bell made a, made a pretty compelling case with the idea of nations being judged. And then you see the New Jerusalem with gates that are always open because it's always daytime and the nations will come in. And, and so there is sort of a judgment and then still opportunity to come into the kingdom after that. Yeah. If judgment means an assessment of right and wrong, I think God's doing that moment by moment. Yeah. If judgment means some kind of punishment, um, I have real problems with that. Let me go to your example of Donald Trump and you. Yeah. I don't know you all that well, Paul, but I'm going to guess that you say yes to God's call to love more consistently than Donald Trump. Now, let's suppose, so. <laughs> <laughs> let's suppose in the next hour you both die. What happens after death? Well, one perspective might be that God looks at both of your lives, puts you on scales of how much good and bad you did, weighs it all out, and then says, okay, Donald Trump's got to go through 13 years of purgatory, and Paul's got to go through one, whatever. Yeah, that doesn't seem like a forgiving God to me. Um, however, if in the afterlife, God continues to call both of you, do you think someone whose habits, habitual way of living has been not to cooperate with God, which we're in this case, we're saying Donald Trump is like, do you think he's going to immediately just start cooperating with God? Or is it going to have to take some habitual changes for that cooperation to come about? I suggest, I suspect it's going to take some time for that to change. Mm -hmm. And so um, there'll still be some natural negative consequences for Donald Trump in the afterlife when he says no to God. Mm 
And there's reasons then for us to say yes in this life, not only for the positive that comes here and now, but also because it, as the scriptures might say, gets us ready to be in God's presence in the afterlife. Mm, that's good. That's good. I, I think that's a good way to look at it. And I, I, I do struggle with the universalistic idea of, you know, everybody ending up in the same place. Cause I think we, we need, there needs to be some sense that there's justice to all of this. Right. And I, I guess for me, I think for, for human beings, we need to feel like there's, there's some sense of reckoning in all of this. And, and, yeah. and I suppose that, like you say, the, the pure universalist would say that that reckoning is happening day by day. Um, but yeah. I guess I'm still hoping there's some measuring stick at the end of all of this. Hmm. I guess I have, I've got four or five arguments against universalism. One of the ones that at least for me makes a lot of sense is um, let's suppose God sovereignly sends everyone to heaven, even if they don't want to go, but God just up and decides to do it. If that's the case, we're all going to go to the good place after we die. What real significance does our lives here in matter how, how do our lives matter mm. what significant choices do we have like right now i'm thinking to myself we seem to be in the midst of some pretty stiff climate change and i'm trying to live my life a little differently than i did in the past we seem to be reckoning with russia invading ukraine and i'm trying to figure out what that means to how i might be help helping people um these kinds of big issues that we're trying to reconcile and how we ought to live with. If everybody goes to the good place in the end with no qualms, it's all just there, then why should I give a rip? Why not just eat, drink, and be merry? Because we're yeah. all going to end up in heaven. But if, in fact, our choices matter, our lives matter, and we don't all go to the good place no matter what we do, then our choices now are significant. Hmm. Well, I love that. I love that. And I think there are some Christians that I don't want to hang out with in heaven anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> uh, you know, let's let's finish with this. Where do you see the church now then in, in, an, in an open and relational theological construct? How, how does the church uh, work into that? I think I'm going to draw again on something we talked about half hour ago or so. Um, because I think God and creation and people are moving through time into a future that hasn't been yet determined, that we are evolving in that sense. The church can become a different church in the future. Right now, I see a lot of aspects of church that I just don't like. <laughs> I think there needs to be some radical changes. And if I thought the church was static, if I didn't have a relational universe and an open future and thought everything was determined, man, I'd have to think that apparently either God wants the crap that's going on right now in the church or God doesn't really give a rip and is just sort of sitting on Mars eating popcorn. But if I think God is actively involved, calling us to live a life of love, and the church can be something different in the future, even different than what we thought was the best in the past, that gives me hope, despite all the difficult and 
problematic things I see in the church at present. So that would be one answer to your question about open and relational thought in the church. And and I guess we we need each other in open and relational theology. Yes, need God community. needs us. Yeah. <laughs> we not only need each other; God needs us. We need yeah. God. <laughs> yeah. Jesus really meant that love God, love your neighbor as yourself stuff, didn't he? Yep. Yep. Yeah, that's interesting. I I and and I think it, with sort of the progressive nature, if I can use that term, although it has its own connotations, but of of this theology as I hear you saying it, then then we don't necessarily have to judge like it was bad then or it was good then. We just this is where we're moving now. This is where the wind of the spirit is going now. And and even I think right now it has it should have us all rethinking what organizational church looks like or do we need organizational church at all or what does it look like? Yeah. I, I, I'm I'm not against institutions and organizations. But I'm definitely a person who thinks that institutions and organizations can sometimes screw things up royally. So, um, you know, I'm not an absolute anarchist. On the other hand, I'm not a let's keep things the way they are kind of person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I always go to Jesus just said, you know, not one stone of that thing's going to stand on another. And he didn't say, pray that that doesn't happen or pray that it'll be restored. It was like, Nah, it's time. Cut it off at the roots, throw it in the fire, and let's let something new come. And I, yeah. I don't know. I have a sense we may be in a similar, a similar season. I hope so. Yeah. I hope so. Well, Thomas J. Ord, a pleasure talking to you. And you have a doctoral program in this, uh, right, as well. Yeah, at Northwind Theological Seminary. And what's unique about this program, we follow the Oxford method which means that I work individually with the doctoral students on readings and topics and projects, and it's fully online, so people won't have to move anywhere. Um, and so it's it has lots of advantages over other doctoral programs. Wow, that's a, that's a really cool thing. And have you, have you seen uh, a lot of people leaning into that uh, COVID and post-COVID? Yeah, you know, we started about three months into COVID, I have 25 doctoral students at the moment uh, all over the world. So there's, you know, the nice thing about online education is you can have people all over uh, being involved. And what's great about this program is it's on topics people really care about. So sometimes people will get in a doctoral program and take courses on things that don't really matter to them, but this is tailor-made to each uh, individual and their interests. What a great conversation. So excited that Thomas J. Ord came to visit us and we will talk with him again for sure. I hope this was encouraging to you and I hope you'll go to my website, pastor-paul.com to see how you can help us with subscriptions or how I can walk alongside you with my coaching or mentorships. Pastor-paul.com is that website. Thank you for listening to the Post-Evangelical Podcast and remember, God is not mad at you.